everybody. Welcome back to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. Another week, another episode exploring, I guess, Buddhist practice, but more like why people around the world decide to put their love, their time, their energy into the Buddha's teachings, into the Dharma, how it makes a difference in their lives, how I guess it might make a difference to you listening, just to hear people living with such integrity, such authenticity, and sharing stories of that practice from people in all different walks of life, giving their lives to the Dharma in the context of the Tarantana Buddhist community. And this week's conversation is very pleasing for me to be having because it started in a kitchen a couple of weeks ago in Cambridge when I was passing through and got talking late at night to two friends who are here today just about their work supporting people being arrested around protest, around climate, climate issues. And we got talking and said, wouldn't it be good to have a conversation about this in the podcast? And here we are making it happen. So I'm going to introduce our guests in a little minute. If you're listening to this, you probably know how to get a podcast already, but please do feel free to leave a good review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like what you hear, it really helps. The world is totally awash with podcasts these days, and you need some way to let people know that yours stands out. And I think ours stands out. I can say that with some confidence, just knowing the amazing stories that we share week to week to week from this podcast. We'd love your help to help people get hold of it. So I'm going to say hi to our guests this week in alphabetical order, sort of. First of all, I'd like to welcome Amaragita, who's joining us. Amaragita, are you joining us from the Buddhafield Project still? Well, we're, we're nomadic, so we're all scattered to the winds. And I'm in Stroud. When the season starts, then we all get together and put on various events. As of now, there is no particular base, but that is something that is in the pipeline. And do you want to say a little bit, Amrigita, about what job you do, what your relationship is to Buddhafield, even very briefly what Buddhafield is for people who don't know? So Buddhafield is a wonderful branch of the Tree Ratna tree, which has been going for about 25 years. It's very much a sort of outreach element because uh, we started off going out to different camps and to different festivals, borrowing people's land. And then we were given a bit of land and then we rented land and then we bought land. Uh, So it's very much about being land based, being in the elements, providing opportunities for all kinds of people that wouldn't normally sort of come across an urban Buddhist center to really see what it is that Tree Ratna what it is that the Dharma has to offer. And it's very beautiful to be sort of in the elements, connecting with nature, connecting with each other. And it's just a a different sensibility, practicing like the Buddha did, you know, going from place to place and setting up and then leaving no trace again. We've got a festival and we run a whole series of retreats as well. So I'm the chair and we have a very interesting kind of organizational structure. We run on sort of sociocratic, holocratic principles, which means that we've got a lot of very devolved decision making. I mean, we work with approximately about 2000 volunteers every year. So it's it's a very large beast and we do lots of different kinds of things. We've got a cafe which goes to different events and festivals. We have a very big retreat that's family friendly. There's about 250 to 300 people. Children have been coming since they were babes in arms and now they're sort of operating bits of the team themselves. 
I think Banti once said he wants to encourage us to think of ourselves as a people. And that's what the village definitely represents is this kind of real throughput of all ages, but being kind of steeped in ritual, in meditation and looking at ways for the Dharma to be really relevant to people right in the midst of householder living, householder lives. Mm, that's wonderful to hear. I should tell the story I like to tell, which is once Sangharakshita, who you just referred to Bhante, which if you don't know, is Urgen Sangharakshita, the founder of our community. He once said to me that he thought Buddhafield and Free Buddhist Audio, which is one of the projects I've been involved with, were the most important developments in Tri Ratna for 20 years. He said that to me in the sort of mid-2000s. So it's very nice to have you with us, Amrita, and representing Buddhafield for the first time on the podcast in quite a while. So welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. And next we have Katja Behrendt from originally Germany, but now resident in England. Welcome, Katja. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. When we were talking about a guest list, an excellent guest list for this conversation, why do you think your name came up? Yeah, so I'm quite involved in Extinction Rebellion Buddhists. So that is a group of Buddhists of different traditions coming together together. We've originally come out of a different activist group called Dance, which originally came out of Gaia House. And yes, yeah, so we meet as Buddhists from different traditions and often do meditation-based actions, so either sitting meditation or walking meditation, and quite often in the context of Extinction Rebellion, but also on our own, we've got a theme going on, for example, with Barclays. Barclays is the biggest funder of fossil fuels among high street banks. And so, yeah, that's something I've been involved in for a while, and I think that's why I got involved to this conversation. And I'm based in London. I'm part of the North London Buddhist Sangha, and I'm actually preparing to go on the ordination retreat in a few weeks' time. So yeah, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Hey, that's very exciting to hear. Congratulations. I hadn't heard you'd been invited on that course. Amazing. You're going to turn into another being. We could do a whole podcast about that, couldn't we? Like, what is the ordination process? What does it mean? But you'll just have to tune in for future episodes. Let's put one together. And finally, our guests from Cambridge, happily in the same room together, are Priyadaka and Yoga Ratna, who are the two gentlemen I encountered in the kitchen in their community late at night. And they were on their way out to support some people who'd been arrested and were being released. And we just got chatting about it. And that was the origin of this conversation. So thanks for saying yes to a podcast. And thanks for helping us put together a stellar guest list for it. Yeah, it was good to be able to say hello to you a couple of weeks ago in our kitchen. Myself and Yoga Ratner were about to go out to wait outside Cambridge Police Station because we knew three people had been arrested during that day for civil disobedience in terms of climate activism at the Schlumberger Company in Cambridge. They would have been in police cells for several hours and it can be a bit disorientating and a bit of a shock, a bit lonely to come out in the middle of the night onto the street being chucked out by the police. So we were there to be, you know, friendly faces to welcome them, give them a hug, give them some food and get them home if that's what they needed. So that's why we were there. And I particularly knew how important it was because the same thing had happened to me last September. You know, I'd come out of police cells. I didn't really know where I was. It was late at night. And suddenly there were friendly people giving me a hug, buying me chips, giving me a drink. And we could suddenly chat and, you know, connect normally again and get taken home. Yeah, I I found it very inspiring to do that. And it's not something I've done very much, but I have been on the receiving end of people, you know, just showing up when they've been arrested and being let out of police station, you know, somewhere in London or Greater London. It can be very disorienting. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very happy to be here. 
I've been kind of, I think, gently trying to sort of encourage people in Sri Lanka to take an interest in climate activism for quite a while. And it's just something I feel passionate about. I just feel it's, it's such a big issue. I think Buddhists have a lot to offer the environmental movement and the world generally in a, in a more speaking out kind of way. I think we can be a little bit kind of introverted in a sense. I don't wish to be critical, but I think we can. I think Sangvach actually said that it can be a besetting sin of the Buddhists. We can be a bit kind of inward looking and sort of not so much engaging in issues in the world. So, yeah, maybe it's something we could talk about later. But I see it as very much part of my, my Buddhist practice, basically, is to non violently speak out, if you like. So I guess one of the overall themes for this particular episode is hearing from people, hearing their personal stories about living out a Buddhist response to various social justice issues as part of their Dharma practice, as part of their Buddhist engagement with the world. A lot of that is personal, and we'll hear personal tales about that and experiences about that. It's worth saying that it's also a recognised priority in Chiratna. All the chairs of our Buddhist centres in Europe certainly have got together and identified that finding a particularly Buddhist response to many of the issues that people care about in the world today is a priority for our community. We want to do that work collectively. We want to do it at the level of our institutions as well as in our personal individual practice lives. I guess that might be a good place to start the conversation is for some people that in itself either doesn't really make sense to them or they think, well, hang on a minute, how is such a personal path of practice or a community founded in principles of nonviolence? How does that square up with contemporary protest movements or just a sense of being an activist in the world? Isn't it somehow antithetical to Buddhist practice? You do hear people with those kind of concerns, and I'm guessing it's rooted in a certain sense of legitimate withdrawal from the world, the need to not try and sort out the world on its own terms, but to find a different way of relating that isn't essentially political in a certain way or you know, focuses more on having an impact through friendship and through awareness, mindfulness practice, through kindness, etc. And when they see Buddhist communities and Buddhist centres engaging in public with what looks like social disobedience or things like that. They worry that somehow we're being worldly and we're giving away the ground of basic Buddhist practice. So I'm interested in people's responses to concerns they've heard when they've encountered friends who wonder what they're doing. Why are you involved in this work? What sort of expression of Buddhist practice is it? Maybe we could start with you, Katja. Yeah, sure. I guess how I think about it is through my practice, I've become much clearer on what's really, really important and much more connected with what my values are and more able to act from those, but also in a certain sense, less willing to compromise on what's really, really important to me. And I think the way that relates to activism, for example, is that there was definitely a point I used to also think like if I do my bit, if I'm vegetarian or vegan, if I vote, if I'm active locally, that's enough. But I think at some point I just realized what's at stake, particularly with the climate and ecological emergency and the suffering that's already happening and the suffering that is going to happen in the future from it. 
that might mean that I need to really look at what an appropriate response is and that I might have to come a little bit out of my comfort zone and get involved in some actions which felt at that point quite a bit more out of my comfort zone, like direct action wasn't something that I had done before. Yes, I think that's how it relates to my practice. On one hand, I'm more connected to my values and what's important, but also I'm more able to hold some of the contradictions and some of the challenges of getting involved in activism like that. I think what you said, Kasia, there about it is a bit more complicated and a bit messy because it is a sort of a, a middle ground between complete withdrawal, as you were saying, and uh, withdrawal from the world. But we don't want to be a political party. We don't just want to be wanting to solve one of the world's problems and another of the world's problems. There's something a bit messy, so it's not possible to exactly give a perfect answer or explanation or justification for what this is all about. And Buddhist practice does involve exploring this this complicated middle ground between living out our Buddhist ideals and being involved in the world. I was involved in animal liberation in the 80s. You know, at that time, it was always a challenge because it could appear to be quite confrontational. It could appear to be quite us and them. It had that element of, of compassion and making a difference, you know, really making a difference to individual lives of a few animals here. And there's just no quite answer to that. And what would what I've been involved in now has that similar awkwardness because it, it can appear to be disruptive. People don't like us getting in the way. People don't like us making a noise. And that can step into the world of, of confrontation and, again, dividing up. And I can't sit easily and just say what I do is okay or I mustn't do anything at all. So, you know, I have questions about what I do. Yeah, I like what you said there, Priyadaka, about, like, you've got questions what you do. I think it's really good to have questions and for me it's an ongoing exploration around what am I doing and why am I doing it what's my mental state and is this the best thing for me to be doing so to give an example I was part of an action last September which was actually not with EXA but it was with a group of doctors and healthcare workers because that's my background to prepare myself for the action, I did meditation, I did a little ritual, and I really tried to come from the best possible mental state and to have the best possible mental state as I went into that particular action. And then I think my experience during the day, and it didn't go to plan at all, was that I felt really expansive and there wasn't a lot of ego contraction. I felt expansive. I felt really with the people we met on that day from the other activists, we were at a JP Morgan, the people who work for JP Morgan, the security, the police. It was a really interesting experience. And it really showed me how it's important, my preparation, my intention that I bring to actions, because it can be messy and it's not a very clear-cut thing. And so I think we really have to rely on our practice that we do as Buddhists. Amrigita, can I maybe bring you in here on that thing Priyadaka mentioned about the tension around othering people? Mm. I mean, I know that partly my involvement and my ability to be part of Extinction Rebellion is just part of the fact that, you know, that's how I was brought up. You know, there's a sort of just a momentum of, you know, my both my parents were very socially active. I grew up learning a lot about racism, learning a lot about you know women's place in the world. And my parents both always took us out onto marches and took us out because there was a really felt sense that there were injustices in the world and that it was important, if you could, to be able to show up to say, these are my values. 
I want to stand for my values by being seen in the world to stand for my values. And when I was young, I was involved in Greenham Common. I was involved in all kinds of things. Reclaim the night marches. I've been involved in, you know, lots and lots of different things. And it was interesting that for me, after a while, I did feel that instinct, which is very much an instinct of compassion and love, an instinct that says there's something here that I really believe doesn't have to be this way. There's a different way of being human. There's a different way. You know, there's more possibilities. We can live in a different way. So to me, that's an impulse of love. And it's wanting to come from that. But yet those movements, particularly in the 80s, the 80s were just an incredible, wonderful, extraordinary heyday of activism in so many ways. And it was beautiful. And what I saw was that people were horrible to each other (laughs) a lot of the time. You know, I mean, they would go out on a march, but a lot of them then just got into a lot of conflict and, you know, a lot of difficult things. And that wasn't the expression of love. And that's what brought me onto the Buddhist path, really, was I wanted to be able to completely congruently in all the situations act from that place of love. I think that, you know, the Buddha didn't just stay in one place and just meditate and just say, I'm just going to wait for people to come to me. He went and met people. And for me, my sense of, yes, I'm now with my practices, the fact that I'm held in a, in a wonderful community, I feel like I've been given tools and ways of seeing things that I didn't have when I was younger. And that, you know, there are things that are happening in the world that the Buddhist response to, which is to create a completely different sense of self-awareness, a, a different sense of being empowered by a different drive other than division and hatred, to be able to exemplify that and to move in different worlds to talk to people and to bring that into all these different situations. I think that's really, really important. And just kind of remember the fire sermon where the Buddha goes to these fire worshippers and talks to them about fire and about, you know, that everything is on fire and the eyes are on fire and the mouth, everything is on fire. And he goes into these different worlds. He doesn't, he doesn't just create a world where everybody speaks the same language and and comes to him. You know, he actually goes and speaks the language of those different people. So I feel that as Buddhists, you know, there are so many different worlds. And this is just the world that I was born into and that feels like a good fit for me because I know how people relate to these issues. You know, I feel like I'm involved, but I'm also got a, a different perspective. And so much of what people are trying to do within a lot of social justice movements is what actually Buddhist practice has already done and is already created, but people can't make the link between these two things. So it's very important to go out and to bring the Dharma to contemporary issues that are real for people and to engage with people about that. And at the Buddha Field Festival, there's been a series of workshops that I've done. First of all, we did the Buddha on Brexit, then we did the Buddha on Trump, then we did the Buddha on COVID, and this year we're going to do the Buddha on war. And I was just discussing it with someone, and Katja's face just went like, oh God, how can you do that? You know, a bit like, scary and I'm yeah exactly we need not to just step back if that scares us what have I been doing for 30 years on my cushion sitting getting a flabby bum if not to be able to walk in and say let's have a conversation about war let's have a conversation about the division of COVID let's have a conversation about the divisions of race you know we mustn't shy away from these things because 
the Dharma has a way of us being able to have those conversations that leave us not feeling divided and polarized against each other and that opens some space for a different kind of action. And that's what we need. Buddhism is about going against the grain. It's not going with the grain. It's going completely against the grain of all our conditioning. All our conditioning is telling us that we are here and they're there and we're divided and we've got to go for what we want you know, and it's us versus them. And so if that's what practice is about, then it's important to step into all kinds of different situations, including these ones, and be the love that we can exemplify more deeply through our practice. So I feel it's important to kind of keep stepping into these difficult places. Mm. It's interesting hearing you, Amarita, because I'm sort of aware there's no one in this particular conversation that's opposed explicitly to activist work. It might surprise people in the audience that Buddhist communities, like any other communities, have sometimes polarization arising within them around things that matter like this. People have very different views about it. I suppose it strikes me listening, Amrigita, that the message here isn't everyone should be doing this work all the time. The people are going to have phases. There are going to be different kinds of people doing different kinds of work, some of which will involve withdrawal and not activist in that particular way, although it might be activist in other ways, engagement with mental states is activist work when it really comes down to it. But there does seem to be a call in what you're saying to kind of breadth of perspective when it comes to seeing yourself in community and at least being open to the fact of engagement that people are engaging with this way, even if you don't get it, it does have a tie to their Buddhist practice. It's not separate from that. Yeah, I'd just like to really agree with Amaragita there. I mean, I think, you know, that Buddha spoke to all kinds of people. You know, he spoke to ministers, kings, anyone he met on the streets. He also had public disputes with Brahmins. I think sometimes it's said that uh, Buddhists should leave, you know, climate to, to the climate activists or, you know, it should leave the environment to the environmentalists. But I think the basically, you know, the politicians and the establishment, if you like, aren't really taking care of the natural world and in very big decisions, which we don't have direct influence over. And the political process doesn't really give us a, a real voice, I think, on big decisions about uh, you know, trade agreements and so on. So, I, yeah, I just think it's important to try and have a Buddhist voice. Buddhists should be speaking out and saying what they think about these things, really. I think Buddha was an example of great communication and a communicator who was very persuasive. He would argue, but not in a polarising kind of way. There's a particular encounter he had with the Brahmin youth who was arguing with the Buddha about caste system. Basically, the, the story is that the Buddha was accosted by this Brahmin youth who heard that the Buddha didn't agree with the caste system. What the Buddha did was he didn't oppose this youth. He didn't simply tell him that he was wrong. He just asked questions. So he got into dialogue with this youth, and by asking questions in a very skillful manner, the youth himself became convinced. He realised that the bases of his belief in the caste system were false, un untenable. So I think that's just an example of a very inspiring one of um, you know, non-violent communication and not othering, but persuading. I guess then one thing that comes up, you know, because you each have a different take on practice or the practice element of this, it strikes me just, again, that none of you necessarily find it easy. This stuff comes with challenge and actually it comes with uncertainty. So, you know, what we were evoking there about it not feeling clear all the time what it is we're doing. What have the biggest challenges been for you? Have you experienced fear? Have you experienced opposition from people you love? And what's kept you going through that? Priya Dhaka, you can lead us off. 
There's a variety of aspects to bring into this. I mean, I was involved in the campaign called Insulate Britain last September. And <laughs> just to blame Budafield, I came across to, uh, Budafield at the festival. Someone gave a talk and it was a really clear message, a really clear story. And I, I found myself saying, I've got to do this. And as I said, I've got to do this, my stomach kind of knotted up a bit. And I, oh, no. <laughs> a part of me was really rebelling against, how can I get out of this? How can I not do it? Can I break a leg? Can I get ill? Will some magic transformation of Boris Johnson come around and he'll grant us you know our wishes before we go out but I was scared to go out right from that point and it took from July till September till we went out and I found myself almost closed off in myself when I went out just to be able to survive because I couldn't think it out it wasn't I couldn't think it out it was just this gut response I was going to go out traffic lights went red and we walked out in front of the traffic and suddenly I found myself sitting there in front of the traffic lights. My fear slightly faded because now I'd made that decision. I was sitting there and almost immediately people came out and were being mostly verbally pretty unhappy with us, pretty argumentative, pretty aggressive towards us. There was a little bit of physical contact going on. It wasn't much because mostly people being pretty unhappy with us verbally. You know, I found myself really closed off because I couldn't easily respond positively. I couldn't reach out. So it's supremely challenging, and yet I just, you know, still think of, I have to do this, and I stayed with it. And, you know, in previous actions, that's happened you know, in years ago when I was involved in activism. You know, there's a lot of fear, but I felt I had to go beyond that. I had to just go beyond that to raise myself above it. And I still can't easily pin it down, but there's something about just standing out and being seen and being not socially acceptable. I was being socially disruptive. People were saying, stop doing this. And I was really desperate for the police to get there to haul me off. So I'd be out of that situation and, and kind of rescue because I couldn't get up and walk away myself. So I found myself in a lot of physical turmoil over it. And I still kind of recognize that now. And I don't know how easily I'd be able to go back and do that. But fear was overriding, definitely. I did it, but fear was really dominant. Yeah, I can really relate. I think I've got very strong conditioning around blending in, not standing out, conforming, getting other people's approval. And it's really quite deep-rooted. I was the first person in my family to go to university and I only wanted to blend in. And then I moved to the UK and I only wanted to blend in. So it's really, really quite deep-rooted. So doing stuff where I'm not blending in, where I'm sort of like getting in people's way, I think that is really quite a challenge for me. And it is linked to fear for me particularly also sometimes there is a lot of police at these sorts of actions and I find that personally quite intimidating but then it's really interesting to take that then for example into my meditation or my mindful walk or whatever I'm doing because it makes for quite intense conditions to meditate being really connected with the sense of why I'm doing this and that it's really important and that I feel like I don't have any other choice I really need to do this but on the other hand also really facing all the resistance and what I actually don't want to be here like I would much prefer to I don't know have a nice afternoon somewhere with my friends and yeah I think I had some really really very strong meditations in that sort of context yeah in the actions that I've been part of I've played more of a kind of supporting role facilitating meetings, talking with people, liaising with different sort of police and just also holding rituals, supporting it with the faith groups, holding rituals and leading meditations. So, you know, I remember one time in, I think it was Oxford Circus, leading a Metabhavna on a truck 
you know, many, many people standing up and sitting down and just having that sense of in that moment, just being able to tune people in to a kindness to themselves and a kindness to the people that they were with and also a kindness to all the people that were involved in this whole situation. You know, I did get scared at times when there was lots and lots of police trucks blocking people off and kettling people and, you know, all of those things. I wasn't sort of right at the front line most of the time. And most of it was about trying to be a de-escalator. So in my presence and, and in my communications with people, just trying to have people not be scared, really, and try to get people to not completely destroy their nervous systems <laughs> in doing it, which is well, the theme that one of the retreats that we did last year was for, particularly for activists, it was called Roots to Resilience. And I know this is something that Yoga Ratna wants to say something about as well, but we had a retreat which was on our land in Devon. And there was just something really beautiful bringing people together who did feel quite burnt out. And when you really face into the whole climate crisis and you act on behalf of it, you know, it is very easy to feel very downhearted and to feel that everything that you're doing is just such a tiny, tiny drop in this massive machine. But by having this time connecting with the land, with the trees, by doing this work to sort of look at what is the source of the resilience that we can kind of charge ourselves up with in order to go back out again, that felt really, really worthwhile. It felt so important to support people who were just taking a stand for something that they felt very deeply about and for keeping that sense of being able to keep doing what they're doing in the love mode, even though sometimes it might appear like it's in the power mode because you know people say, how can you stop people from getting to work? Isn't that using the power mode? But that's a whole other thing. Just listening again, it occurs to me that quite often we have an even romantic notion of past historical protest movements. You know, people can talk with a sense of retrospective pride about the Stonewall movement or the civil rights movement and even the sacrifices of individuals. I'm thinking about somebody like Quang Duc in Vietnam, the image of the burning monk as a protester. And yet, presumably in all these protests in the past, people experienced the same levels of fear and uncertainty and challenge and frankly, probably abuse and opposition from mainstream how do you remain emotionally resilient or how do you find, where do you look for emotional resilience when you're in the present moment and there isn't a romantic afterglow about your protest movement that you're involved in? How does that work? I think I find the same difficulties anyone feels. I mean, I come from quite a law and order family, actually. I worked at home office, my first big main job, and I started work. So I'm very much conditioned to be a good boy, if you like. And I certainly feel fear and you know, stress and anxiety in these situations. Speaking out on the streets can be quite stressful. But there's two things I do. Personally, I just simply try to be aware of the people around me. When I was arrested the first time, there was a very frail-looking elderly lady who'd been handing out leaflets on the pavement. And for this, she'd been arrested, and we were both going to be put in the back of a police van. And she, she actually started weeping, which is not surprising. But I noticed that one of the police officers, we both had our own police officers holding us. One of the police officers actually started weeping himself. You could see tears in his eyes. So you know, these situations are, are not easy. It's not easy to overcome one's own you know, desire or tendency to other people. But I think in a sense, paying attention to, to the realities of human beings, if you like, that certainly helps me. 
And the other thing I simply do is, you know, the Buddhist Buddhist faith practices, I mean, pujas and mantra chanting and so on. You know, faith, my heart responds to my ideals, my heart responds to ideals of love and compassion. That is a very strong power, it's a very strong force. And also when you experience that as a sangha, as a community as well, that can be very deep nourishment, which I think can keep us going a long time. As you were saying that, I thought about this phrase, our going for refuge and deepening our going for refuge, and that the elements of going for refuge are present in activism. And I would say, particularly, is this commitment to non violent direct action. Because there's something, there's the Buddha jewel there, there's something that you're feeling is bigger than yourself, is something that you want to honor. You know, there's some impulse of wanting something believing that we're capable of something different as human beings and having that belief be a strong part of how you act in the world. And then there's a vehicle, there's something that you feel that you can do in order to, in whatever way, bring that more alive. And then there's the people that you're with. And even though it's not the same as having committed in a spiritual context, in a spiritual community, there is this resonance there. I think that by exemplifying and by being true to ourselves in that way, then there's something that can happen that supports it being something different, you know, supports it not just being about us and them and othering. And I think people can really get a sense of that and get a sense of something transformative and then seek it out more and more fully once they've experienced that. Yeah. Amaragita, what you just said also just reminded me, I guess, with Extinction Rebellion Buddhists, we often get positive feedback or people coming, other activists coming to us and thanking us for having sat there in meditation, having offered a meditation, or that they were able to join it. So I think there is what we do in relation to the issue that we're doing our activism about, but also what we bring to the wider climate movement and to other activists as well. I think we do have something to offer and that's really recognized and being responded to. It puts me in mind catch of probably the only experience I've had of this myself is uh, election time here during the Trump years. And we had an interesting conversation at our Buddhist centre because we had Trump supporters coming to the Buddhist centre. And we were trying to work out how to make sure we had an equitable response and actually still stand on our values because it's tricky territory. And it was a very heightened atmosphere in the US at the time of Trump's election and then during the years when Trump was president, which could easily come around again. In the end, one of the responses we did, probably this is not a surprise to people, is we went and meditated at the polls and particularly during the midterms. And it was very interesting in terms of sitting in the snow outside of polling stations and having that sense that there was something you were giving to your community just by modelling a behaviour. It had no point. We didn't have an outcome. (laughs) We weren't going to change the election, (laughs) I imagine. You know, maybe there were fantasies in mind of, oh, everybody will see us in C-Sense or something. But, you know, there was an experience of both feeling that I was involved in giving something, but also, of course, of exposure And sometimes, of course, people walk past and they're not pleased that you're there to meditate. It makes them uncomfortable. Even something as small as that, which isn't getting arrested or, you know, putting your body on the line. It brought me up against a sense of how much am I prepared to stand up and be a Buddhist in public? And do I think that's legitimate? Or is it something that happens behind the doors of a Buddhist center? And at the time, we actually lost our Buddhist center because it it largely burned down. Again, there was a thing about, well, only some people are going to walk through the doors of a Buddhist center. So In what way do we take our practice out into the world and just be prepared to stand on it, seeing that as a contribution? 
Yes. So following on from what you've said, we have something in Cambridge which is developing elsewhere, which is silent rebellion. So it's simply meditating out on the streets most Saturdays, just sitting silently without any specific message, allowing people to see us meditating there. And because it says silent rebellion, you know, there's a connection with consumption and how we live. But we'll just talk to people on whatever they want to connect with. You know, there's most of us are sitting there meditating, but there's a few people standing just in case people want to ask questions or people want to join in. So it's kind of, as it were, that thing of not quite passively just meditating, but it is actively being out there and allowing people to be receptive to us and us to be receptive to what they want to say. So there's this process of trying to engage with people. People can still see that as confrontational. People can still see that as a, as a difficult thing. We're still potentially asking them a question which they don't like. And you can't easily avoid that. Again, it's just unsatisfactory. You know, it's a bit messy. So meditating isn't intended to be a threatening thing or a confrontational thing, but it can be seen that way. That moves on into almost any other area. As soon as you do something, people might be unhappy with it. Or as soon as you say something, people might be unhappy with it. And at what point do you say, this is okay, this is not okay? And again, I don't have an easy answer. I suppose that for my own self, there's something about taking a risk, just doing something or saying something and learning from the consequences of that, which might be a bit tricky. It might be treading on people's toes. It might be disrupting. But then there's opportunities to learn. Rather than thinking what might be the lessons we can learn, well, I don't know what those lessons are going to be. So I've got to try and pluck up the courage to be out there, engage with people. If I'm aware, if, if I have a degree of sensitivity and, I, and I'm listening, then something can happen. I suppose I have a sense of an acceptable level of, you know, the traditional language is non-violent direct action. So it is direct and it is action, which will be messy and potentially people will find disruptive and just not acceptable. But with the best will in the world trying to be non-violent does allow the potential for engagement and it does allow us to say we are being non-violent, we are not going to go beyond and learn from that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing saying, well, I'm being active and then the people that are walking past to do their shopping, they're not active and I'm taking an action and they're not taking an action in a way. Because I just think this whole idea of people thinking that they are neutral or they are not doing something is just such a fallacy that I just really want to bring, you know, bring down because everything you do is an action. You drive your car, you go on holiday, every single pound, every single penny you spend is an act, an action, you know, it's, it's an action. So this idea that, oh, well, we're doing the kind of neutral, non, you know, whatever thing is just a fallacy. And the thing about it is it's being done unconsciously. And so I think the role of Buddhism is to try to wake us up to our wrong views, to wake us up to the way that we're just habitually, you know, sleepwalking. And it's really no different for me in terms of just standing for something is trying to support that waking up and seeing the effects of actions, you know, what are the effects of our actions? And right now, all other issues are in a completely different order of magnitude to the issue of the environment and the issue of whether we will have a habitable planet in the next 50 to 100 years. So to me, it is an act of practice and an act of service and an act of love just to engage with that potential. You know, if you take that principle, the precautionary principle, even if it's only three out of 10 likely to happen, well, what should we do? And the fact that we can't act, the fact that I think it was like 30 or 40 years ago, where the first recognition of what could happen was really brought out. 
and how that was systematically silenced. So now here we are. And in a way, that fundamental change, that movement away from fossil fuels that needs to happen, our addiction to fossil fuels is really no different from our complete engrossed attachment to this egoic process that to be human is to be part of. It's just as challenging to give that up. And obviously, it's not something you do overnight. But the challenge for us is that we don't have as much time. In a way, it was nice in, in Buddhist terms to be able to talk about practice over lifetimes, you know, because we see how difficult and challenging it is. We can take, you know, 10, 20 lifetimes to conquer that particular glacier or whatever. But with this, it seems that a lot of profound suffering is not that far around the corner. And so that just puts another whole layer of peril, I think, is the word. Hearing that, Amrigita, that there's an urgency to this, and in a way, however one relates to the story or the metaphor or the reality of multiple lives, we don't have that kind of time necessarily available to us. I'm quite interested in how you think, as people who are trying to work this very uncertain ground out in your own life as practitioners, do you think that this kind of engagement with social justice is going to change Buddhism in a way, is going to change the way people conceive of the Dharma? You can look in Buddhist history and try and find some analogies to this, but you have to work quite hard at it. The scale at which people now practice Buddhism through what's known as engaged Buddhism. Do you think this is something that is going to change our conception of what Buddhism is? Or would you like it to? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be nice. <laughs> I mean, basically, I'm with Priya Dhaka. It's like the whole thing's very messy. I don't really have any answers. I don't know. I'm just doing what there is to be done. But I do feel that there is a particular shadow aspect of Buddhism, which is that it's not really known for its engagement, really, with social issues. That's not the first thing you think about. And maybe that's a good thing. But I do think that we as Buddhists have a lot to offer and that there are lots of conversations that are taking place that we're not in, which if we were in, we could add a little bit of something that could support the direction that we'd like to move in, which is more compassion and more wisdom. You know, the world is really in need of compassion and wisdom. And I think it's a shame that we're not in more of those conversations, playing an active part in those conversations. So that's what I think would be would be nice. It would be nice to engage a bit more confidently in some of those conversations that are going on. Yeah, I think the climate ecological crisis, I think it will almost push us to not see ourselves as that centre of the world. So it will push us into having to take account of the natural world. I think there is a pressure on Buddhists to actually think about what, what is our place in the world and how are we practising in relation to these things going on. There's some really excellent talks on politics by Vajragupta, where he says that, that you, know, you can be Buddhists of different political convictions. You can be a conservative Buddhist, you can be a Labour left-wing Buddhist, which I, I completely agree with that. But what do you do if the political economic system is actually seriously not looking after the natural world and after people? What if your political party political system in your country is dominated by corruption and unethical in major ways? It's not enough to leave these things to politicians. When I was young, in the 70s or 60s, you could kind of assume that the political parties were basically humanist. They cared about people. Personally, I don't think that is actually the case nowadays. How much can you really leave to the establishment, if you like? I think there is a pressure on us to think about our place in the world, even as world citizens, you might say. Whether Buddhism will change, I think probably <laughs> it will change 
slowly. I don't know how many people are really going to get excited or engaged or see things differently. My fear is there could be a polarisation, which perhaps has always gone on. And I don't want to be part of a polarisation, but I do want to have a sense of are we at least asking the questions, as Amrigid said, are we in the conversations, are we exploring these issues? And if people want to disagree, that's okay, but it's not that there's this is the right view or that's the right view, let's see how we can take it further and respond with real Buddhist values to find this complex thing in the middle way. And I suppose I say I'm not just a Buddhist, I am part of the political economic system, I am part of other aspects of the world and <laughs> you know whilst buddhism has the way forward has the biggest perspective as far as i'm concerned i need to engage whatever the right word to put it on a day-to-day level with issues like this politics how we spend our money poverty i can't separate myself out from that so i have to engage with it somehow yeah it's good to hear that because i think people assume that polarization is the only option when it comes to dissent And I think that actually one of the things we could add to any conversation as Buddhists, if we're on our game, as it were, is how to have a positive expression of dissenting opinions within a wider harmony based on values that we share. And actually, there are very few people doing that in the world. And it's a shame if we are not going to show up and do it ourselves. I think we've still got some work to do internally as a community to get ourselves ready for sort of public viewing, as it were. But it feels possible to me, certainly. Surely the sixth mass extinction event will have some sort of impact on Buddhism, although I don't think I know what it will be. Maybe there is a chance here to rebalance some of the ways in which Buddhism has been portrayed or misunderstood in the West sometimes around being almost like about personal development. So maybe there is an opportunity there. But I think what we can particularly bring to bring back to activism, because a lot of activism is still around stopping fossil fuels, stopping this, being against that. I think we can really bring a vision around what's possible and what's achievable and what liberation looks like. And I think that is so, so important to have this positive vision for people to come together and to build communities around. So I think that's one of the really big, contributions that we can make and how we're relevant. One of the words that is emerging, which is something new, so maybe this is an effect, and it's something that at Buddhafield we're really wanting to commit ourselves to for the next 25 years of our life, is this word eco-sattva. For me, it has such a really beautiful resonance of all the qualities that are needed that as human beings, we need to be able to engage more deeply and imaginatively with the whole of the ecological realm and the ability not to polarize and all the kind of strengths that are going to be needed as we enter the next 25 years. So what we're doing is wanting to raise money for a new home for Buddhafields because we've never had a home. We've always been homeless, but it's going to be a home for the ecosystem spirit. So it's a sense of those qualities can be strengthened and deepened and then brought into the world, into the conversations. So I think maybe it already has changed Buddhism because that word has come into the zeitgeist, which is a new word, but one which encompasses so much that is helpful. Thank you, Amrigita. And thanks to everybody. If you're listening to this conversation and you would like to either just find out more or lean in a little bit in your own life to what engagement might look like, or just find the company of other people who are asking these open-ended questions about their place in the world, what contribution they might make as Buddhists, or just as interested citizens of the world, as Priyadaka said, 
You can find on the Buddhist Center Online events through the year, usually around climate and engagement with the climate emergency and indeed other aspects of social justice. If you go to thebuddhacenter.com forward slash live, for instance, this week, you'll be able to take part soon in an urban retreat with the Triratna Earth Sangha, which is a movement that's just finding its feet within our community. You can also take part in a couple of four-week courses with Shantigarbha, author of the burning house, looking really at how you can engage with issues around climate without falling into despair, how you can have a sense of positive agency and just the fellowship and support of other people who are asking the same questions. So do check them out. We'll put the links in the show notes. And yeah, as usual, just I'm full of gratitude and admiration for the work of these eco-sattvas before me on the screen. You can't see them, but I can see them. Amrgita's doing a little dance in her chair. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you all of you for just showing up in a way, showing up in the world, showing up today for this conversation. It's lovely to know that it blossomed out of a conversation in the kitchen late at night. And now it's been listened to hopefully in kitchens across the world as people cook their food and go about their business. So thank you to you, Katya. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks to you to Priyadak and Yoga Ratna, original hosts, as it were. Yeah, I'm glad to have participated. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to be here and to meet and talk. Thank you. And thanks to you, Amrigita, for, I suppose, just holding such a precious space as Buddhafield, part of that lineage now in our community. Yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you. And we'll see you all out there in listening podcast world in the next week or two with a new episode. But for now, take care, be well, look after each other. Go and find your place in the world. 